Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. The main doors on the floor of the chamber had been barricaded. The police had their guns drawn. The mob was uh, surrounding us, and they were trying to ram the doors down. We could hear the bangs as they were breaking the glass and trying to break through the doors. We heard a gunshot in the speaker's lobby as one of the officers killed uh, one of the rioters. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today, Congressman Jason Crow, is a former Army Ranger who served three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and now represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District. He was one of the House managers for Donald Trump's first impeachment trial, and during the January 6th insurrection, he helped get fellow House members to safety. Later that night, when members returned to certify the election, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy recognized Congressman Crow as one of the, quote, heroes among us. Jason, it's hard to believe that was only a couple of months ago. Thanks for joining us here on Burn the Boats. Yeah, thanks, Ken. It's it's uh, such a pleasure to be with you and a uh, longtime friend, of course, and happy to, to come on and, and have a chat with you today. Well, we're honored to have you, and it's always good to have someone on the show who I know on a personal level because it just makes the conversation so much richer. And I'm going to start with a personal question. Where are you mentally in terms of processing the events of that day? It was, I mean, you have the context of, of your time as a ranger to compare it to, but it was a traumatic event. Yeah, it, it was a traumatic event. And uh, as I've been really vocal about in the days and weeks after January 6th, is, you know, trauma affects everybody, you know, whether you're, you know, a former army ranger with 100 combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan under your belt, or whether that was somebody's first experience with trauma on January 6th. It's, it, it's outside of the norm of human experience. It's not what people can expect or encounter in their day-to-day lives. And it impacts everybody and it impacts everybody differently and on different timelines. So I've been doing a lot of work, you know, reaching out to media and, and doing interviews to make sure that we're destigmatizing trauma like that. Because as you know well, Ken, we have a, a serious stigma issue with mental health with veterans. We have over 20 veterans a day kill themselves. And, and some of the, that problem is driven by the fact that we have this warrior culture where people don't feel like they can come forward and get help. But, you know, me on a personal level, I'm, I'm doing fine. I mean, I, I kind of um, compartmentalized things a lot on the 6th and after the 6th. But uh, my family's been great. Still trying to work through the idea that, you know, two lives that I've had, my former life and my current life, that I never thought would converge, converged on the six. You know, um, it's been over 15 years since I was in, at war as an Army Ranger, and, and I've changed a lot as a person. I'm a father and husband and member of Congress now, and I never thought that that old life would uh, converge on the, the present one, but it did, and I'll have to deal with that. Well, the accounts of January 6th from where you were in interviews with you report that you were preparing to fight. You were gearing up to do battle should anyone make it inside that chamber. Yeah, I was. As those who have been in combat or in fight or flight situations like that know, you know, there's a certain change in you that you go through when you convert into that mode, when you're preparing for a fight, potentially in a life and death 
situation. And I converted in, back into that. I hadn't been in, in that kind of scenario and mindset in well over 15 years, but got back into it very quickly. And, uh, you know, there was a moment where I was thinking about asking those officers for his gun, because uh, if that mob had broken through the door, it would have been very, very ugly. And, uh, you know, I was prepared to do what I would, what I needed to do to, um, you know, defend my colleagues and, and try to get us out of there alive. You get a lot of credit for that from your colleagues. There are, gosh, hundreds of images that are seared into the, the collective consciousness from that day. But one of them for me really stands out. And it's of you behind, I think, a bench comforting one of your colleagues, a Representative Wild from Pennsylvania. What were you thinking at that moment? I guess, first of all, since this is podcast, can you describe that image and then talk us through what was going through your head? Yeah. So what was happening at that point? There was about two dozen, roughly two dozen members of Congress who had been trapped in the House gallery. And the House gallery is that seating area up above the House floor. They had already evacuated everybody from the House floor, but they didn't evacuate us. We were trapped up there because it's a separate entrance and the mob had already overtaken you know, the, the stairwell and, and that part. So we were there. We had locked the doors, the, the main doors on the floor. The chamber had been barricaded. The police had their guns drawn. The mob was uh, surrounding us, and they were trying to ram the doors down. We could hear the bangs as they were breaking the glass and trying to break through the doors. We heard a gunshot in the speaker's lobby as one of the officers killed uh, one of the rioters. And um, that was what, what was going on. We were up there. I didn't know how we were going to make it out. I was preparing to fight and I saw Susan had just got off of FaceTiming her son and she was very distraught. So I just reached out and grabbed her hand and, and held it and told her that I was going to do everything necessary to, to make sure she was safe and we made it out of there. Is there a community of support among those of you who lived through that? I've been in similar situations and it bonds you in a way that, <laughs> frankly, no one wishes to be connected to another person, but it's, it's kind of an inseverable bond forever. Yeah, it is, Ken. And, and as you know well, those foxhole friendships are very deep and very strong. And we have come together as a group. So that group of members, we actually have called ourselves the gallery group and to have this chat group that we are on. Uh, we chat with each other pretty frequently via text. Almost every day we've gotten together to uh, you know bond over the experience. And we've had a couple of Zooms as well. And we have um, really come together. It's a group of members that you know, we all have uh, come from very different backgrounds, very different districts, we have different politics as well. But we're always going to be bonded over that moment. And that's a really important thing. And obviously veterans can understand that, I think, in a really unique way. As encouraging as that sounds, it's got to be complicated by the fact that there were members in the House that day, who, if not complicit in what happened, certainly abetted it in their words, if not deeds, that's got to really affect the working environment. Yeah. Well, that might be the understatement of the year, Ken. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's, it's really hard. And there's a couple of things I think listeners should understand about that day. One is, you know, those rioters, those insurrectionists, I think the vast majority of them truly believed that the election had been stolen, you know, despite the fact that, you know, all the evidence points to the contrary and, you know, 60 plus courts uh, just unilaterally dismissed the, the lawsuits. They believed the big lie that they had been told. And of course, that drove them to uh, attack the Capitol that day. So that's number one. Number two is that that doesn't happen on its own, right? It doesn't happen overnight. That happened as a result of many folks over months and even years furthering conspiracy theories 
retelling and supporting the big lie and people that know better, people that know it wasn't true, still telling the big lie because it helped their own personal politics and their desire for power. And it worked people up into that frenzy. That's a hard realization to come to. And then you know, the second piece is that this is our place of work, right? And just imagine, if you will, to the listeners there, being at your business, your place of work, and it's violently attacked by a mob. Police officers are killed, over 140 brutally beaten. You know, the mob is trying to, to take your life, and they came very close to doing it. And then afterwards, your colleagues, the people you work with, not only had they incited and helped further that mob, but they continue to support it. And then they even try to bring guns themselves into the place of work and continue to make threats and, and intimidate folks. And your employer can't do anything about it can't fire those people, can't take really any corrective measures. That's kind of the scenario that we're facing in Congress, and it's very, very difficult. Well, I wasn't going to bring it up, but uh, you're making me. We have to talk about your fellow representative from Colorado who has attempted to bring a gun to work, who was one of those inciters of violence. How can Colorado send Jason Crow and Lowen Boebert to represent them side by side? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I'm still grappling with that. You and I both can. You know, we, we carried a gun for work. We carried a gun to serve our country because we needed to. And it's a very different mentality than somebody that uses it for political theater or stunts or to get attention. And that's really what you're talking about here when you talk about, you know, folks like Miss Bobert and others. You know, I grew up a hunter. I started hunting when I was 12, been a gun owner most of my life, including right now. I'm still a hunter and a sportsman, and I believe in, in the Second Amendment rights and, and the rights to the self-defense. But, you know, I also learned in the military, like you did, that citizenship also comes with duties and responsibilities. Rights also comes with duties and responsibilities to be there for each other and to be responsible with uh, firearms and responsible with your words and how you interact in the community. And that's, I think, a part of this discussion that we don't have enough. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. President Biden has spent a lot of time and political energy talking about unity. You have spent a lot of time talking about accountability. Can you give us your, I guess, best case scenario on how we arrive at a point where we can come to terms with what happened on January 6th, with what very nearly happened, the overthrow of a government, the live-streamed executions of elected representatives in our nation's capital. I'm betting you're going to say you cannot have unity, you cannot have reconciliation without accountability. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there are different sides to the same coin. I mean, you look at history, right? And you look at every situation where a society or a country 
has been through a, a trauma and a major divisive period. You always get through that and kind of build and bring people back together when there's accountability and there's truth. You know, look at one of the best recent examples of South Africa post-apartheid. They literally call them truth and reconciliation commissions because they knew you couldn't move forward without truth and without some accountability. And you had the victims and the survivors facing the perpetrators and demanding accountability and having an airing of those truths. And that has you know, allowed folks to move forward and unify in a fairly remarkable way. And we face a similar situation in that you just can't sweep things under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. Because, you know, not only would that risk it happening again, but you have to, you know, heal those wounds by having honesty and having truth. And I, and I really believe that's it's important. But, you know, I, I, like President Biden, believe in bringing people together. You know, I believe in that project. I learned about it in the military. You know, that was one of my first early formative experiences of taking a diverse group of, of folks and bringing them together and bridging differences to achieve common goals. And we can do that again, but we have to have the, the leadership and the truth and the accountability to make it happen. When you say accountability, do you just mean political accountability, which I'm I'm skeptical we can achieve. We'll get to that in a second. Or, or do you also mean legal accountability, criminal liability for, for example, your colleague who was live tweeting the location of the Speaker of the House, the third in line to the presidency as the riots were unfolding? Yeah, I'm not really talking about political accountability too much. You know, I, I actually rarely, despite the fact that I'm an elected official, rarely talk about things in terms of, of politics. What I'd like to see is I'd like to see truth come out, right? I'd like to see people stand up. They don't want to hear it from me necessarily, but you know, my GOP colleagues need to tell their supporters and their constituents that President Biden is the rightfully elected and legitimately elected president of the United States and that these conspiracy theories are lies and it's not true. And start to stand up for truth. And I think that's really important. And I know that's not going to be easy for some of these folks because of the heated rhetoric and the divisiveness and, you know, how Donald Trump has, has really stirred some of these folks up and into a frenzy. But it's really necessary in order for us to move forward. You have to have truth to really have um, unity and, and for us to have a deliberative democracy, right? Democracy requires debate and it requires a, a push and pull between competing ideas, but you can't have that debate, you can't have that discussion unless you can agree on a common set of facts. Because there are facts, right? There is a truth, an objective truth to many things. And we have to agree on that first. Do you still hold out hope that the Republican Party, not isolated individuals, but the party writ large, is going to do that and with a loud and clear voice acknowledge the legitimacy of the Biden presidency? Because it's not what we're seeing. I mean, if January 6th could not break the fever, what in God's name can? Yeah, in the short term, I'm not seeing that. There's no doubt about it. I've been extremely disappointed by you know the lack of courage by folks uh, not standing up and telling the truth and staying up for principles and, and morals. In the long term, though, I do have hope. Uh, I, I think you know the, the genius of our system is that it's self-correcting, right? And that it's very resilient. And I do think there will be people that will stand up, and there already are, right? There are incredible profiles of courage, by the way, of some of my GOP colleagues now that are, are standing up and speaking truth to power and taking a stand. And they're doing it at great detriment to themselves and at great risk. But they're doing it because, you know, they share, I believe they share, you know, love of country. Even though we might disagree pretty ardently on policy, they're pushing back. So I, I do have hope for that. 
and it's needed, right? Because we need a strong and viable Republican Party. We do. And I say that as a Democrat, which is, is going to shock some folks. But to get things done, we need to have a negotiating partner on the other side, right? Because I'm not always right. The Democrats aren't always right. You know, that's, again, the genius of our system is that we have all these different ideas and we come together and we debate it and we try to come up with the best result. And that process of debate and push and pull helps us achieve the best result. But we need to have a viable partner on the other side to do that. I am not quite sure I am still with you on that. I I was for the longest time, but I'm just so appalled at the behavior of former mainstream Republicans and their willingness to offer the veneer of respectability to insurgents, to white supremacists, to racists. That's going to be hard to come back from. And you haven't Mm -hmm. pulled punches in in offering that critique either. At, At one point, I think you called fellow colleagues who align with that kind of thinking depraved. Um, Yeah. I mean, no, I think we're in agreement. I actually think we're talking about the same thing. What I'm talking about is whether or not the Republican Party can redeem itself and become a mainstream party again for the purposes of our democracy. Now, what you're talking about is individuals, because there are depraved individuals who I believe are irredeemable at this point, right? They've shown that over and over again. And there is no place for these folks in that debate. You're talking about members of Congress, colleagues. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about members versus political parties, right? There are people that don't belong in elected office, period. And unfortunately, we're dealing with those folks, you know, and some of them are my colleagues right now. So there has to be a change of faces. There's no doubt about that. And there needs to be, you know, new folks who are willing to step up and take their place and help us rebuild. I want to go a little farther down the rabbit hole and get your thoughts on the metastasizing right-wing extremist movement. You've used that word in, in describing how it has evolved during the Donald Trump presidency. What do you mean by that? First of all, this isn't new, right? I mean, this is, this is as old as our nation itself, right? I mean, it goes back to our original sin of slavery and, uh, you know, the white supremacy and white nationalism that permeates so many of our institutions and, and our history that we have never dealt with in the way that we need to deal with it. So it's always been there. It is on the rise, though, significantly. And it's on the rise because Donald Trump has mainstreamed it. He's romanticized it. He's given it permission. And when you have the highest you know, seat in the land, the president of the United States sitting in the Oval Office, giving interviews, talking on TV or tweeting out support for these radical extremist ideologies and these fringe groups, these hate groups, it is a very, very different problem. And we've seen the results of that and how it's increased radicalism and extremism significantly over the last couple of years. And we've seen the results of that in January 6th. And unfortunately, we're going to see the results of it in the years ahead. This is not going away anytime soon. We're going to be have to dealing with this for many years ahead. You served as an impeachment manager in the first impeachment trial, and I'm wondering if you appreciated then that this was your moment. This was Congress's moment. This, in a very real sense, was a moment for the American people to hold this president accountable and prevent a power grab, which we eventually saw because the impeachment failed in the Senate. I viewed it as the country's moment, that we had seen assaults on the rule of law, abuses against our democracy, against our institutions, against our norms, the likes of which we certainly hadn't seen in in my lifetime. And it was finally the moment for it to culminate and for there to be accountability. And that's the way I was kind of viewing the trial and the process. And then I, I don't think I really appreciated it 
in the moment for you know what a, you know the, the magnitude and the historical aspects of it because you know when you're in something that's as hectic and as intense and stressful as it is you're, you just kind of get that tunnel vision when you're just focused on the mission and what the task at hand you're not thinking in terms of broader or longer term impact so I was very focused uh, during the trial and, and tried to stay focused to do the job and then do it as well as I possibly could and certainly um, was mindful of the gravity of representing not just Congress but the American people in the process. Well, you certainly realized, with the benefit of hindsight, the moment that was missed, not by any failings on your part, but by the failure of the conviction in the Senate. You wrote, I believe this was after the insurrection on January 6th, you said, we warned the Senate a year ago. We said, this man is not well. We said, how much damage can he do between now and the time he leaves office? And we know now that the answer to that is a lot. I think a lot of people have realized that the gravity with which you approached that first impeachment trial should have been the frame of mind of everybody, that you saw the president then as the threat that we all saw him as on January 6th. Well, I certainly thought so and continue to think that to this day, right? I, I, I just firmly believe that if anyone was paying attention and was looking at things in an objective way, putting aside their own biases or pre-inclinations, that they could see this threat uh, because we had plenty of data. We had plenty of you know historical action to base it on over the, the last couple of years, right? And it became very clear, you know, who this president was, not just on the campaign trail in 2015, you know, he made that abundantly clear, but, you know, in, in 16 and in 17 and 18 as well. And I thought we had more than enough information and more than enough data to draw that conclusion. And the way I always put it is, put aside that this is the president of the United States for one moment, you know, the former president in this case, and and just think about whether or not you would put up with that in your own personal life, whether a friend from a family member or somebody who's close to you putting up with somebody saying certain things and doing certain things. And the answer is almost inevitably no. You know, so why is it different? In fact, the standard should be higher, if anything, for our president and not lower but it certainly shouldn't be different than the expectations that we hold our family and friends and other people that we're close to. And I just ask people to kind of use that as a frame of reference. So, you know, I made that warning. I knew the direction it was going. And I disagreed with the senators who said that they thought that President Trump had learned his lesson. There was nothing at all to indicate to me that he had learned any lesson whatsoever. And to this day, um, he still hasn't learned that lesson because he's incapable of learning that lesson. I can't let you go without asking about guns again. As a Coloradan, as a representative from Colorado, you have once again been thrust into this tragic and cyclical story. And one of the most upsetting things to me is that in the aftermath of every shooting, you hear the right come back with, well, the solution is more guns. And I'm wondering what your best argument is in front of your constituents. What's the argument that listeners can bring to their conversations with people who they care about who buy that myth? How do you dispel it? How do you, as a combat veteran, as somebody who knows from firsthand experience the difference between a hunting rifle and a weapon of war, what do you say? Well, we're not the only country that deals with mental health. We're not the only country that deals with crime. We're not the only country that deals with social disenchantment and anger and vitriol and partisanship, but we are the only country that has as many guns and as widely available access to guns 
and the types of guns that are often used in these mass shootings. That is the only outlier. Like that is the only data point and difference between us and every other industrialized country. And it's what explains the fact that we are the only outlier in terms of our gun deaths and uh, our mass shootings by many, many magnitudes. And we don't have to live like this, and nor have we lived like this in the past. You know, this is a, a problem that has greatly increased in the last few decades. You know, we talk uh, a lot about rights, but the corollary of rights are duties and responsibilities to each other, to our country, to our neighbors. And there's no right that doesn't also have a responsibility along with it, whether it's the First Amendment, freedom of speech. The limit on that freedom is you can't threaten to kill somebody. You can't go into a theater and yell fire. There's limits on all of these because we live in a society. We are a member of a community. And no person is an island unto themselves. And it's time that we start recognizing that and fulfilling our responsibility to each other and do sensible, common-sense things. Well, thank you, Jason. We end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question. What's the bravest decision you've ever made? Boy, that's a tough one. I think deciding to start a family and becoming a parent It's not an easy thing, right? You have obligations outside of yourself. You have obligations that last long beyond your life. And I think about that, whether what I'm doing are my actions, you know, not just as a member of Congress, but as a parent, as a member of the community, how is it going to impact my children who are going to have to live with these decisions and my actions well beyond the time I'm gone? You know, that's scary sometimes. You know, being a parent is sometimes described as having a decision to have your heart live outside of your body, and that makes you awfully vulnerable. So I will um, I will stick with that. I hope listeners appreciate as much as I do how much that answer says about you, given your background as an Army Ranger and the, the many valorous things you've done, that the bravest thing you perceive is your choice to be a parent. Thanks, Jason, for coming on. We'd love to have you back. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Jason Crow for joining me. You can learn more about his legislative priorities at crow.house.gov and find him on Twitter at, at @repjasoncrow. Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Christian Picciolini, a former leader in the American white power movement who now runs the Free Radicals Project, which is dedicated to extremism prevention and disengagement. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, Vote Vets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.